Hello there, you Awakening Wonders on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you download your podcasts. We really appreciate you, our listeners, and want to bring you more content. We will be delivering a podcast every day, seven days a week. Every single day, you'll get a detailed breakdown of current topics that the mainstream media should be covering. But if they are covering, they're amplifying establishment messages and not telling you the truth. Once a week, we bring you in-depth conversations with guests like Jordan Peterson, RFK Jr., Sam Harris, Vandana Shiva, Gabor Mate, and many more. Now enjoy this episode of Stay Free with Russell Brand. Remember, there's an episode every single day to educate and elevate our consciousness together. Stay free and enjoy the episode. You'll probably know Dr. Drew because he's been in media for years. He's a board-certified physician and legacy celebrity talent with over 35 years of national radio, New York Times best-selling books and countless telly shows bearing his name. You can check out his work at drdrew.com. Plus, he's on Rumble streaming with his show, Ask Dr. Drew. Now, let's get into our conversation. Dr. Drew, thanks for joining us. It's great to see you, sir. And uh, as we were just starting to mention before the mics heated up, uh, we were together few years ago we did a we did a speech together about recovery and as i think about our last meeting and then this one i many roads have been traveled <laughs> it's like would you have imagined the world would evolve the way it has no and the only people that did imagine it were kind of peripheral zealous fringe evangelists that were at the time regarded as conspiracy theorists. I, I always felt, you know, felt that in our conversations before, because we're talking about medicine, we were talking about mental health, we were talking about addiction mm-hmm. and wellness. Yep. I know that in our previous conversations, we would have touched on the social implications of a condition like addiction, that addiction is yep. somewhat related to social pressures. We may yes. even have got as far as saying that the pharmaceutical industry possibly exploits addiction. We may not have been in a position to talk about Purdue and Big Pharma and the Sackler family and the way that the opioid crisis has been handled. But, you know, I I know that's the kind of thing we would have touched on before. But as you say, we're in a very different territory now. From your perspective, Doc, what lines have been crossed and how is it we've found ourselves here? Well, there, uh, there's, uh, I mean, (laughs) 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 so I've become a student of history because of this and and much to my uh, shock. But I think there's. I want to. I want to answer that two ways that are a little bit glib and a little bit uh, just so. One is post-structuralism has taken hold in this country, in particular, in a way that has been destructive. The idea of truth has been undermined, and the reality is there is a truth, and one of the go- our goals should be to ascend to some approximation of truth. We've we've forsaken that, and that has bled into sciences and everything. So that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Number two, uh, that's the sort of historical sort of note, but number two, the, you mentioned the Sackler family and the excesses of the opioid uh, uh, industry, but the real perpetrators of the opioid crisis were evangelical physicians. In this country and in the UK as well, pain medicine became this cudgel that went around and forced physicians, sound familiar now, forced physicians to make pain the fifth vital sign. Pain was more important. There should be no pain ever, but to the point where 90% of the Vicodin prescribed in the world was prescribed in this country. That was not the drug company. That was me and my peers, not me. That was my peers. And evangelical physicians are dangerous. Fast forward to COVID. In this country, we have a Deborah Burks who evangelizes for lockdowns. 
an evangelical physician, went state to state, governor to governor, and persuaded, frightened these governors that they didn't lock down, they'd be killing people. Same phenomenon, same playbook, same disaster. It's interesting that we're talking about two uh, well, two really subjects that both of which I'm fascinated by: the impact of post-structuralism and relativism. The yeah. idea that there perhaps is that there's a degree of ambiguity. And I, I look, I'm sympathetic to the idea that there are institutions that have been deemed just and granted authority that could benefit from open-ended analysis. These are some of the areas yeah. of post-structuralism. Yeah. You know, not necessarily talking about semiotics and the semantic component of that, but certainly looking at power from a, an open-minded perspective, but also the idea that when you say evangelical physicians, it shows that there's a sort of uh, component to prescribing medicine and issuing medical care that is emotional rather than practical. And the whole- These what, days, these so, days, for sure, <laughs> for sure, not only emotional, but also social. Because now we are having these movements in medicine where people are, you know, I, I was a scientist, I was a clinician. And the idea that we have social movements within medicine and focusing on things that are away. I mean, it's it's good that we're paying attention to these things, but that those are sweeping us away from science is really very, very concerning. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And I don't know how or why. That's happened because the post-structuralist idea, does that lead to the over-emotionalization of everything? Or I would have thought that it was quite an academic, well, quite cold, atheistic, materialistic, yeah, rationalistic yeah. ideology. And yet what we are talking about now is a type of hysteria within the medical hysteria. profession. Which is but the hysteria was we were all, the world, much to my amazement, seemed to have been prone to this hysteria. You're absolutely right. So now, you know, again, I was giving you just so things that came to mind when you asked your initial question. My other my other sort of frame is, and I know you'll agree with this, is we've had particularly again in this country, a narcissistic turn with the, the general trait structure of our personalities have gone towards what's called cluster B, borderline sociopath, narcissist. And I'd not seen a lot of histrionic, but it was waiting in the background, clearly, with the hysterias right on the heels of it. And uh, we, I can go on and on. I wrote a book about that 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, it's something I can talk a great deal about. I saw it coming. I predicted. I did, I, and I knew that the liability of narcissism is scapegoating. I knew there would be scapegoating, and I knew there would be moms. And, man, oh, I didn't know it would look like this, though. Do you think that this narcissism and this uh, emergence of uh, kind of pathological conditions that would have before been regarded as uh, extraordinary and maybe even rare and certainly as problems, and yeah. it sounds like you're saying they've yeah. become normalized, is this because of individualism? What, what, um, and what do you mean by that, that everyone's become borderline sociopaths? So, so I, I'll tell you where I noticed it. I, I worked in a psychiatric, I'm an internist, but I worked in a psychiatric hospital, hospital for 35 years. I ran their addiction services for 20 while I was practicing general medicine in a hospital in an outpatient setting. That was, I've been 40 years in medicine. And in the early mid eighties, when I first started working at the psychiatric hospital, I would look at all the admitting forms, you know, patients coming in and I would see there was always a, 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 a window where we put in the personality diagnoses and the psychiatrist would put in all, I saw all kinds of things, dependent personalities and, and uh, obsessive, all the full spectrum of the A, B and C disorders that you find in the DSM-5. I noticed toward the end of the eighties, all of a sudden I was seeing 
in the female predominantly borderline and by the 1990s only cluster b that's all we admitted were cluster b patients and i thought at the time if you remember i did a excuse me a radio show back then and i was talking to people you know by the hundreds every night and all i was hearing about was childhood trauma childhood trauma childhood trauma and the outcome of childhood trauma is commonly a cluster b personality at least trait if not disorder just to uh, reiterate because so that i understand properly cluster b it what could you just tell me what the indicators are that, again that's that's the borderline narcissist sociopath and histrionic those are the cluster b disorders they're all they're considered the narcissistic disorders and so and so uh, see, having seen that evolution i wrote a book in the probably 2000 i don't know what it was eight or ten or something where uh, we actually did personality inventories on celebrities because we started, I started seeing that they were really having struggling with this stuff. A lot of trauma. You, you're, yeah, you're shaking your head, and uh, and of course we documented that they had a higher incidence of narcissistic traits than other populations, and even our control population. We used our control population was business school students, and they were above previously documented average. It was very clear everything was moving that direction, and it was all childhood trauma. Uh, that's the underlying, the underpinning issue. And as you know. Uh, under we we as we used to discuss one of the rocket fuels for addiction is trauma so do you think that there's been a greater increase in trauma or a tendency to diagnose trauma what are the prevailing ambient factors that have caused this phenomenon so it, uh, it took until the 2000s for my profession to go oh adverse childhood experiences affect people's mental health and health Hmm. Amazing. Isn't that amazing? So they developed the ACE scale. What is on the ACE scale, which are adverse childhood experience scale, things like divorce, domestic abuse, somebody in the family in prison, somebody using substances. And if you have more than two of those, you're, and, and of course, overt trauma and all those sorts of things we would think of as trauma. But in this world where families are decayed, where people are using substances, where there's a lot of violence and aggression, who isn't exposed to that? It's extremely common to be exposed to adverse childhood experience. And then and add to that screens. We have no idea how that's amplifying everything and what they're being exposed to there, whether that's an independent trauma. So here we go. I mean, it is on. And of course, of course, it's happening more than ever. The only period of history that I could find similar experiences of that kind of abandonment and neglect and abuse of kids was pre-revolutionary France. And I wanted to write a chapter in my book about that. And I was told by the editor it was too speculative. I said, look, there's going to be, I just don't know. I don't, there's going to be guillotines. There's going to be mobs. I, that's what narcissists do. They, they, they start, they have so much unregulated aggression. They have to form mobs and focus it on somebody else. And that's here we are now cancellation, everybody. Welcome to our world. So if you have a culture that fetishizes the individual that is histrionic and narcissistic, sociopathic, the, the characteristics that you laid out, one of the symptoms when that becomes ubiquitous is the emergence of scapegoating. It has to, the, the sort of culture of the society requires it. And you say revolutionary France, obviously with the guillotine, uh, practice that in a visible, demonstrable and dramatic way. But you're saying that our culture is bearing those signs also. If something's happening at that scale, it can't be moving up through individuals, can it, Doctor? There must be some sort of central social factor. 
Well, I haven't thought about it that way. What, what do you, uh, it's an interesting question. You mean like somebody taking advantage of that and sort of uh, amplifying it or manipulating it in some way? It means uh, for me, I, my sense is that, you know, it, whether there was a ras radical increase in addiction, you think, well, why would that be? Mm. Is there the availability of substances? Is there economic inequality? Is there increased poverty? What are the social factors that likely lead to uh, epide epidemic proportions being reached? And I feel that, that, that you indicated at the beginning that, you, that the, the, the values of the culture have shifted. And I feel mm. that that's true also. Uh, on some mm. level, and it's a difficult thing to entirely articulate, some people in our chat are saying the breakdown of the family. And I feel mm. like we have lost our connection with God. I feel that that like that our values have have become narcissistic. That even identity politics, and I'm sympathetic to the civil rights movements around each of the categories. But uh, what I sense is that the individual has become the sort of apex of value that what you are as a person and what you feel and what you want is the kind of summit of the social values rather than who we are as a member of a community who we are as a member of a movement or even a nation or a religion yeah i think that i feel that that plays a part somehow yes there's no doubt right i mean what are the first couple of steps of recovery from a substance use which is letting go not controlling everything, which means, you know, as, as uh, many of my patients say, they feel like they're a piece of ass around which the whole world revolves. Mm. That, that needs to let go. You need to let go of being in, no, 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 no. You're not the center of the universe. Mm. And then having for people to do that fully, they have to have some sort of concept of faith, something. I don't care. I don't know what that is for everybody. I'm, it's kind of magical to me to some extent, but I know that it's necessary for people to fully let go of their self-centric, whether it's white-centric or Eurocentric or whatever centric it is, they, they have to let go. They have to let go and be open to what the world has. Now, uh, you know, doing that is it sounds just so it sounds like everyone should be able to do that. It, it isn't easy. It's not easy to do that, really. And to yeah, and to find a, some sort of spiritual something. It, it's it's hard for people, but I do think we miss it badly. I, I've, I've been saying there's a spiritual malady for 20 years. You have too. the last time we were together. That's one of the things we sort of agreed upon with clarity that there's something up um, how we fill that that emptiness. I, I don't I don't to me that I don't claim to be the the carrier of that information, but I do know we need to solve it. Yeah, you're right. Because of course we were talking before about addiction and you were kind yeah. enough to help me with my book recovery. I remember, and I went on your radio show or podcast. I can't remember what medium was flourishing at that time, but I do know that when we did the <laughs> live event together, you, uh, like, books. yeah, well, yeah, it was a print and we were talking yeah. about like you agreed with my interpretation of the 12 <laughs> steps is about having, as you just described a spiritual awakening and the support of a community and ultimately being able to overcome the inclination towards a type of self-centeredness that you're describing in your cluster B diagnosis there. I, I, I want to interrupt you because I, I left out one thing that I was going to comment on your last construct of, of how you were describing the the lack of connection. Lack of connection is really what you're talking about. Lack of connection to other, lack of connection to community, lack of connection to God, lack of connection to self. Yeah. Frankly, we are dis connected and guess what trauma does it disintegrates us disconnects us but but i want to make one more comment because i think people will assail us for saying 
people aren't connected to their community. I, there, there is a phenomenon afoot right now I call grandiose caring, which is still the narcissism. I care. I care so much about this group and that. Oh, I care. I don't care what you care about. If you actually care about somebody, f- develop a skill, develop a, a, some sort of wisdom uh, and go and offer it to another person a person. Don't stand on the stage and and beat your chest and gnash your teeth. That is not, that is grandiose caring. That is narcissism. I'm glad you care. I want you to care about other people, but that is not going to help the present moment. Yeah. In Christianity, I know that it's significant to do God's work privately and quietly and with humility so that it doesn't become performative. And I guess a component of the scapegoating has become something that's often discussed, virtue performed publicly, the appearance of morality. And I was thinking about the culture at the moment. I was thinking, how are people getting it up, Dr. Drew, to talk about the Oscars or the Golden Globes when there is this immersive sense, this uh, that we are in some kind of crisis. I was so sort of fascinated to hear you, uh, your trage- your diagnosis because it's one that I agree with. Because continually, from a, a kind of from this odd globalist humanitarian perspective, people will continually cite co- confident statistics around. Well, do you know more people have been pulled out of poverty than ever before, and the standard of living this and this is better than ever? And I always feel well, I don't know that that's the reality a lot of people are living in. It feels like we're in a highly precipitous and dangerous moment in a massive crisis of meaning and this kind of shared psychopathy seems relevant crisis of meaning yes what does it mean to live a good life and it may well be that these measures these instruments that we measure economic well-being and you know people being pulled out of poverty all that stuff you just referenced is not relevant to the crisis of the present. I mean, it's always relevant. Let's be fair. People need to be safe. They need to be able to, you know, but they need to be able to thrive. If you don't get people, if people are in pain, they can't thrive. Let's just be, let's just state it such. But the the reality of the present moment may be something different. Spiritual crisis, lack of meaning. What does it mean to lead a good life? What does that mean? And when I say it, people, and again, I only have this country, I'm deeply embedded here. So I have this as my reference point. They confuse a good life with happiness and hedonic happiness. You know, is I'm sure you study Schopenhauer. So you you go from happy to wanting more happiness to happy to wanting more. It's hedonic happiness is a, is a dead end street. It's, it's, it's nice. It's good, but eudaimonic happiness as Aristotle called it, is something that's much more nourishing and is the source of a good life. So we have to just, we have to each of us figure out what that meaning is for us. And there's some, you know, people have thought about that for thousands of years, and there are people that have suggested certain things. We might return to some of that stuff, perhaps. Yeah, the inward generation of joy compared to the external application of pleasure is a confusion that seems to have been with us some time. I was chatting to someone about Epicureanism, the sort of like Epicurus was kind of got associated with pleasure seeking, but someone explained to me recently, no, he wasn't about pleasure, he was about joy. And when we start talking about pleasure over joy and transient happiness, which is can easily commodified. It's it's very distinct from the generation of independent joy, joy coming from within, joy in your nature. You, you said independent joy. I, I'm of the opinion, and I may be wrong about this, but I've always noticed that real joy tends to be a shared experience. 
it's something that people have together, uh, or at least it's amplified in such a way that it becomes more substantial when it is experienced with at least an other, if not many others. Yes, I think that's a fair assessment. Although, like sometimes when I think of someone like Yoga Nanda, uh, like he's talking about there being an ever-present bliss that we're blocked off from because of layers of samskara and layers of injury. And I try sometimes to contemplate what does Christ, what's meant by the kingdom of heaven being within. So no, there's no doubt. Like I, I don't want to def- uh, like sort of double down on the kind of individualism that you and I are both decrying, and that I reckon that there's a certain joy that can be derived from relationship and service, but the idea that what I'm trying to establish and explain is that as a recovering addict, the idea that pleasure is going to come from the outside, whether it's behavior, like through sex or through food or through heroin or alcohol, that I can consume somehow pleasure rather than through service and good conduct, through right conduct, joy will be generated as a byproduct rather than as the aim. Isn't right conduct something that is in short supply also? I you know, Kant's first principles. I just, you know, I, I always think it's kind of amusing. I mean, his his first principle was, of course, that, you know, behave as though your behavior can be judged as universal principle, which is essentially another way of saying behave in such a way that people can see all your choices as though there's a camera going at all times. Yeah. And guess what, everybody? Now there is a camera going at all times. <laughs> so you are going to be judged. So you might as well uh, fall in line. Okay, before you answer the next question, Doctor, I have to tell our beloved viewers on YouTube, we need you to join us. We need you to be a part of this movement because we're going to discuss stuff that would be contraband on a WHO platform, on a platform that listens to the British government when they say demonetize Russell Brand. This is part of our movement. We need you with us right now. We're going to be talking about Dr. Drew's views on Joe Rogan and the COVID protocol that he espoused and why the legacy media responded the way they did with that massive pylon. You know, pylon, excuse me. Isn't it weird when the whole media responds with one voice as if there is one agenda to amplify and normalize the power, uh, the agenda of the powerful. We're talking about Fauci, we're talking about excess deaths, all sorts of stuff we wouldn't be able to do on YouTube. So click the link in the description and join us there. And please, see you in a second, consider becoming a supporter of our content, becoming an Awakened Wonder to get an additional video every single week. Brilliant ones on excess deaths, on pharma protests, and more importantly, perhaps support our work so we can grow together. So in particular, Doctor, from the, this, do you consider that a seismic occurrence took place at the commencement of the pandemic and the regulations that were imposed and the attitudes yeah. around vaccine mandates? Was that a pivotal moment in modern history? Did it reveal something to us? I believe it did. It certainly revealed something to me, and not, not just a something, a lot of things. And uh, it, it's so funny when I I was you know thinking about how you you frame your you identify your your program as stay free. I thought to myself, gosh, I used to my entire career I used to tell people to stay well, but my shift because of COVID has been stay free also, and that is that is astonishing to me <laughs> that I always thought that was a foregone conclusion, and the fact that we have to stand up and uh, stat and sort of let's say it fight for that is just astonishing to me uh who i talk to i mean i was thinking about some of the interviews i used to do on hln and cnn i used to interview white supremacists i used to interview people that are way out there just to 
see what they're all about. Find, learn what I can from them. Now you're not allowed to even speak and not allowed to show. Like, what is that? I Who I talk to is, and by the way, I, I was thinking about like Joe Rogan when he got treatment for his COVID. His doctor gave him ivermectin and a monoclonal antibody and a uh, NAD infusions, two NAD infusions. And the, and the press, of course, freaked out about the ivermectin, but the NAD infusions was the really interesting thing and an outlying treatment. That was outlying. No, no one has ever suggested that. And it seemed to help him. And I thought, wow, how interesting. And whatever the hell he does with his doctors was is his effing business. Yeah. Between the two of them, it's no nobody has any business even directing their attention in that direction, let, a, let alone commenting on it. It's disgusting. It is disgusting that people feel it at their privilege to intervene and to have to try to disrupt basic relationship, basic liberties. That's woo. That's mind-boggling to me. Like you said, it became hysterical. It became political. They were unable to constrain themselves. There was a concerted legacy media effort to shut him down, to silence and smear and disgrace him. They dug up things from the past about him, his use of like uh, profane language. It was an ex- it was extraordinary <laughs> how that was coordinated, yeah. and it was it de- degree revealed the degree of authoritarianism that, as you said, Doctor, we assumed was off the menu that well every whether you're democrat or republican we care about individual freedom and free speech well no that isn't what's happening anymore that's not the dynamic who knew right i i did never imagine that uh who you speak to with somebody would want to regulate or that they would uh, again this is the mob stuff this is mob this is scapegoating this is guillotines this is framing the world as pure and impure it's this whole model of of you know, it's it's a religious model, really. They've gone bad, right? In terms of organized religion, uh, it's just come into this sort of social construct. And it, just like they did in the French Revolution, you were never pure enough of a Republican, so you had to go on the guillotine. Uh, and by Republican, I mean somebody who supported the New Republic. Yes. They were called Republicans. So you know, first you're the Jacobins, and then all the Jacobins got their heads cut off, and by the Saint Culotte, and then the Saint Culotte and Robespierre got their heads cut off by the Royalists, and then the Royalists got uh, put in prison by Napoleon. It's, I just it was one thing. It, it does not go well, everybody. You it, you are in your in the interest of all to stop now. Stop this nonsense now. Doc, is this a good time for us to talk about the wellness company that are promoting and are partnering us with our content today that I believe you are affiliated with? We've already done a promo for the wellness company for the medical kits where in the event of an emergency, you would have in your home necessary medicines, including the controversial um, prize winning ivermectin, as well as a variety of other products. Can you tell us what um, that kit is and what in particular what your affiliation with it is? So. I'm a member of their chief medical board. Uh, there is a variety of physicians on that board with, with differing opinions. We're not all in complete unison on everything, but we all agree that the physician-patient relationship has been adulterated. We were just talking about uh, Joe Rogan and how people tried to adulterate his relationship with his doctor. We, we, the physician is powerless in this country right now, so I am interested in empowering patients. They should have access to things that they know how to use, that are simple to use, that we can teach them to use. They can have backup with telehealth. There's more efficient and certainly much less expensive ways to do that, and that's what the wellness company is all about. There's many more things to come. Pay attention. You have some other readiness kits coming that I think you'll be amazed by. That you, sh- if, When you think about it, of course you should have these things on hand. They're 
they're easy to use. You know how to use them. And uh, I'm just proud to be a part of that, of their organization. I'm a paid member of that board and I'm happy to be a part of it. It's not uh, prepper type stuff then. It's not necessarily in the event of an emergency, you should have antibiotics, antivirals. You think it's just a sort of a sensible thing for people to have in their home both. anyway? B- uh, both. I think... Uh, look, look, I, I, my, my wife is lucky because, you know, if it's an after hours situation and her physician's unavailable, I can kind of step in and help out. I mean, not, it's not a great idea to treat your family, but there's certain things that are just so easy to use that people should just have. And I've thought of, so for, when people travel, I give them a, a group, a, a batch of medicines. I teach them how to use them. Here's how you use these things. If this, this, this happens and guess what? There's never, I've been doing that for 20 years, never been a problem. Guess what? Our travel kits are coming next. All right. So there'll be things like antibiotics, antiparasitics, medicines that are likely to be useful in the event of a variety of kind of common conditions. and Common, urgent, Mm. after hours. For God's sakes, don't go to an urgent care where you pay for all that real estate, all that equipment, all those employees, you pay for that when you walk in there. It's it is our system could be infinitely more efficient. And this is an attempt to bring it that way. Well, brilliant. Well, we'll post a link for that right now. And I guess we're doing some kind of discount, I would hope, given that our okay. we are like affiliated in some way. But we'll um, we'll post that right now. Thank you, Doctor. Can we move elegantly onto the subject of excess deaths it's a difficult thing to talk out because of censorship as well as the fact that you know well take this example there's been an eight percent increase in excess deaths among children in the united kingdom it's difficult to countenance that that means there's a higher likelihood that your own children are going to die why is this and i saw recently a channel four documentary that interestingly were one of the companies that attacked me recently in conjunction with other legacy media organizations simultaneously working together on their investigation when they were talking about excess death, they they literally did an item on the news. There's a mystery thing. People are just dying. We don't know what it is. And like that, every single comment under the video is, "We know what this is. Everyone knows what this is." <laughs> like, let's say, what what's what's happening, and why is there a, a, not an appetite to investigate this in a fearless and thorough way? That is the bigger mystery. Right. Mm. That's the part that is nefarious, concerning, uh, egregious. Uh, you're, you're beginning, your country is beginning to have some hearings on this in the uh, parliament, though it's just getting started. I've watched some of that. They're being done well and properly and thoughtfully and non hysterically. And we have to be open to any and all explanation. Uh, my own. My own belief is, my suspicion is, I shouldn't say belief because it is science. My suspicion is we're going to find that the real culprit is the spike protein, however you are exposed to it. And so the more exposure to spike, the more we're going to see difficulty. It's, it is clearly the pathogenic part of the virus. And of course, many of the vaccines, that's what we're creating to create the immune reaction is more spike. And maybe some people produce more spike than or something. I, we'll find out. But it is it is going to be the spike. But the astonishing thing is that there, there are more people dying in this excess death pandemic than died in COVID. And yet we shut the world down for that. Uh, what is going on here? I'm not saying on any given day there's more people dying. I'm saying the cumulative effect of excess deaths persisting year in and year out, we're going to easily surpass COVID. And so why isn't there, forget the urgency, just 
why is no country doing that? It, this is this is the astonishing thing to me that the whole world shut down, the whole world became hysterical, and the entire world is ignoring this thing. Now, maybe they don't feel it's the, the place of government. Maybe it's the medical system that has to come up with that. And we take a long time to, to call through stuff, to come up with the evidence of what's going on. If, if you leave it just to the medical system, who's going to pay for the studies? How's that going to get done? I mean, obviously, pharmaceuticals not very interested in it. So I, I think government's going to have to step up and do it. Yeah, I hope you're right. Just to give you some information on the COVID inquiry in the UK, it's cost £145 million up until now. They're delaying the significant questions indefinitely. They've not said when they're going to continue the inquiry, but it will certainly be after the elections in the summer. So there's the kind of opacity that's defined investigations in your country as well. And it, obviously, being a sceptical person, I can't help but think that some powerful interests are being served or protected by the way that this is subsequently being handled. And on that subject. Anthony Fauci has gone from being a sort of a hero, a very deliberately uh, portray portrayed in that manner as well, from late night talk shows, holding dance numbers. It was, and we were all invited to adore Anthony Fauci. He proclaimed himself as being the science in inverted commas. Uh, and it he also said publicly that people, when, when the right measures are imposed on them, will lose their ideological BS. Uh, I wonder if you think that ir irreparable damage has been done in the institutions that surround American medicine, the CDC, the NIH, etc., um, due to Fauci's conduct and the come of the, some of the odd financial relationships around that time. Well, again, a lot packed into your questions, as always. Um, and I, I don't know about irreparable damage because they were adulterated and we didn't know it. And thank God we know it now. So maybe we can do something about it. Maybe uh, the fact that it had gone so far in a certain uh, direction where regulators and pharmaceutical company are so intertwined that you can't imagine. And, and by the way, uh, the publishing infrastructure and medical uh, major medical journals, these, this is all, you know, I'm not allowed even to uh, allow a drug rep into my office to give me a pen with a drug name on it. And yet these guys go back and forth between and amongst each other and share each other's jobs and, and livelihoods. It's just, you, you got it. This needs a very careful analysis. Number one. Number two, you mentioned how Dr. Fauci was a hero. Dr. Fauci has been my hero my whole career. He was the reason I got involved in radio. I was deeply involved in treating AIDS patients. And in 19 mid early 80s, when we were just starting to go from calling this thing grids to AIDS, he was saying, you know, you got to get out there. And he actually was telling us to go out and scare people. Sound familiar? Yeah. That that's going to be millions of dead, millions of dead. And I, and I dutifully did that. And I, I scared the hell out of a whole generation of high school students uh, that they were all going to get AIDS and they were all equally likely to get it. And they had to use a condom. And, and I believe that. I, I thought we were. I thought we stopped that from happening by scaring the crap out of these kids. Uh, but I, I apologize now if if that had adverse effect. I see now the the uh, inadvantageous outcome of using fear. We should never use fear and panic in medicine. It's it's unethical. And and I apologize if if uh, my participation that harmed people. But we really had a you know that was a deadly illness with a one hundred percent fatality rate, not a 1% fatality rate, a 100% fatality rate. And it was a bleak, dark period. I was telling, as a fourth year medical student, I was telling young men regularly, they had six months to live. So there was a degree of panic. I was never wrong, by the way. So there's that. Uh, now, when this thing hit, 
the, you know, the things that I got criticized for were obviously, you know, when you, when things go viral, you know, I'm sure you've noticed it's never what you say. It's always what somebody says you said. Yeah. It's never what you say. And of course, never, and no one ever comes back and go, would you clarify that? What did you mean? Never, ever, ever. And if you try, oh, no, you said, no, they keep saying something else about uh, other than what you've said, which then that goes viral. It's just, it's just insidious. It's disgusting. But there we are. That's how things go viral. And when things are viral on me, uh, the one thing they always cut out of my comments was the the thing I actually got wrong. Because the thing I actually got wrong was at the end of every comment, I would say, please just listen to Dr. Fauci, listen to the CDC. I, they've been guiding my career. They're, you can rely on these people to get us through it. And I believe that until Dr. Fauci was in front of our government and they asked him whether we should, whether, you know, you, you Dr. Fauci, you've closed down church practices out of doors. Is it okay to go to a, a political demonstration? And he looked and he went, I don't know what you're talking about. And I thought, uh oh, he's been adulterated. Something's wrong. Something is something. This is not the same man. So what is going on here? And it just went from on and on and on from there. So I kept expecting him to go back to his baseline <laughs> reversion to the mean, but it just, it kind of never happened. And it sort of was a misapplication of some of the same strategies we used back in the AIDS days. It's a different time. And that thing did, those strategies are not useful and not good. Probably weren't good then. It's quite uh, extraordinary and frightening, I would think, to be in a position where uh, necessarily if you're a medical profession, you have to operate within institutions because institutions, when they're good, are the housing of expertise and accumulative mm -hmm. knowledge. But institutions, mm -hmm. when they are bad, are the vessels for corruption. And it seems like you've almost experienced that uh, metastasis, metastasis. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's been sort of an evolution, and uh, like I said, it went from stay well to stay free. <laughs> that's what my that's my evolution, and uh, part of that is looking. Uh, then I started looking at a lot of things. Look, medical literature. I, I during COVID journals. I I read the journals religiously and carefully, and all of a sudden during COVID, all the science went one direction. That that is not science then. Science is a back and forth, and it kind of moves as you come to understand the landscape of literature. It moves in a certain direction. You kind of develop a consensus. It doesn't just go one way. And I thought, oh, we're, there's something wrong with the editorial process, too. And it was uh, actually, I saved one journalist, not here on my desk right now, but Annals of Internal Medicine, about two years into COVID, finally started write, writing some articles that were uh, about budesonide and about fluvoxamine and about or, you know alternative treatments for early COVID. I thought, oh, my annals of internal medicine has returned. They're back. They're they're through showing the the full spectrum of what's out there. But you know, remember this that Danish study that showed that a small percentage of the initial rollout of the vaccine was responsible for ninety percent of the adverse reactions. I don't know if you know that study. It was a great study done by a Danish researcher and physician. It took her two years to get that published. Two years, two years to publish something that should have been. Just on out out in and and before us and top of mind. Yes, yes, Terrible. yes. Because in a sense, there were uh, opportunities to intervene with what led to incidents of catastrophic incidents. Yes, that's astonishing that there were so many examples of the narrative being controlled. And directed, still now it's very difficult to talk about batches because that indicates that the process was not reliable, that there was variation. There are so many lines of inquiry that are just impossible. I have a few questions, if it's okay, from uh, people sure. in our chat. Primal Colin says, what 
are your opinions, doctor, on... Well, it's quite a lot of questions. Uh, disease X, mRNA slippage, SV40, and the New Zealand whistleblower data. Maybe the whistleblower data. What do you think about that? Because I suppose... if you, I'm sure you're familiar, and potentially there could be 17 million excess deaths based on that. Yeah. I've heard that figure elsewhere also. I, I I pulled that study recently. Uh, I I don't know what to, I like. I don't know what to make of anything right now. I just know we need to continue to look and examine and try to figure things out, not get hysterical on any front. Uh, it, it, ascending to the truth takes time. It's hard. It, it, it's it's not about being right. It's about trying to get to a clear understanding of what what's going on here. Uh, I don't know if you saw the Austrian study that came out. Also, that Vinay Prasad put out. He put on Twitter, which was, uh, I, want, I want to read you that one. I actually I pulled it up because that will really interest your audience, it seems to me. Here it is. Uh, we did not, this is an excellent study, well done, peer-reviewed. We did not observe a significant vaccine effect from the fourth vaccine dose, COVID-19 deaths, during a time with already very low absolute risk for outcome, meaning the vaccine had no effect. And they observed no individuals younger than 40 years died of COVID-19. So why are we getting vaccinated at all? This is the thing. Let's say the risk of myocarditis is one in 50,000. It, it may be one in 800, but let's say it's just for the sake of arguments, one in 50,000. The risk of dying of COVID is zero under 40. Why are we putting anybody at any risk of cardiac injury. Why are we doing that? And why pushing? Why pushing so hard? Especially we know the spike protein is the pathogen. By the way, we have other vaccine alternatives. What about Covaxin? What about whole viral alternatives? Why don't we, why don't we, if you want to push vaccine, how about those? Why this one? And why only this one? Weird, right? I, I, it's, it's, uh, and then how do I give informed consent to a 22-year-old? How do I do that? It, when all of it is obscured and obfuscated, except to say, look, the just recently published data suggests your, your risk of death is zero. Do you need, do we want to talk about the potential adverse effects of the vaccine, given that your risk of death is zero from this illness? I don't know. It's, I don't know. It's, it, it, for me, it seems like it was an extremely revealing period that, that I obviously come from a different world in many regards though there are crossovers but uh, you know in, in our experience in some of our perspectives but for me my co the confirmation that you cannot trust authority that various arms of the establishment work in conjunction in order to achieve favored outcomes that crises are utilized to impose power that if there's an opportunity to introduce authoritarianism and generate profit it will be taken all of these sort of pre-existing biases I would have to call them appear to get like pretty uh, significant ticks next to them over that couple of but, year period but isn't it but isn't it astonishing I mean you and I grew up in similar eras when at least you know question authority was our 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 presumed position yeah. that's how we and then we ex we expected our press to speak to the people in power and to question the people in power that is flipped on its head where people are signing on to authoritarianism and are becoming a part of the elites and reinforcing their excesses that, okay, now we need to become a student of history because that is not something that I would expect in your country or mine. And yet here we are, by the way, the French, by back to the French revolution, the French youth have been pushing back on this. They have been bristling about it since they were getting a vaccine mandate. They were in the streets on Friday and Saturday night, demonstrating against that they're saying that how's that liberty it's a founding principle of this country how is that liberty 
Yeah. In every protest movement, you can rely on the French to take it to extremes. <laughs> it's agricultural. <laughs> We're dumping stuff in the street. Yeah. Thank God for the French, you have to say once in a while, even as a, an English person. Yeah. It's become clear that the function of the media is to normalize and amplify the agenda of the establishment. That's a sort of a paradigm that, you know, whether that's to introduce a new piece of technology, a new piece of legislation, mm -hmm. to shut down a piece of dissent. It's become something that's become prevalent and <laughs> Can you can candidly uh, state in, in this space now, um, Doc? We've got to wrap up now. Thank you so much for your contribution and your participation. And on a personal note, it's just lovely to see you again. Really lovely it, and it, heartwarming. It is Thank lovely to see you too. I, I don't know if you remember, but every time you and I talk together, we go, "We've we got to do more. We need to. Get yeah, to, we need to. We spend more time together." So uh, I'm I, feeling I will that make now. Yeah, I'm I'm like again, like, we should do that. this again. We could have talked for another hour easily. We could do a variety of things. We could do things where we do questions and answers. We talk about mental health, addiction, well, corruption, the duty of the physicians. There's so many things. Let's do it. Let's just do it. Let's, we'll figure out a way to do it. Dr. That's Drew, and thank I'll come, you. I, I would love to come visit you too. That'd be fun to come You're out there. You're so. always welcome here. Lots Cheers. of love to you, Doc. Thank you so much. <laughs>